But I think for vets is, you know, look for, look for the resources. I guess would be the the one, and I maybe challenge the status quo because with PCV2, you know, we, we tend to think uh, in a certain way, and we are not really open to thinking another ways. And I know the uh, the data might turn out that there is no effect or there is no way to predict the production impact through those CP values in other fluids, but at least we know the answer, right? And uh, we failed and. And we know now that we don't we don't we don't have to use that the type of tool. So maybe you know, reach out to resources will be uh, and leverage the resources will be for, for them and challenge the status quo. As a vet, I think um, and, and a pro, as a producer too, I that's what I, I do every day. I challenge the status quo, especially in nutrition. A whole new era of communication in the Canadian swine industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the Canadian and global swine industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Our nutrition group includes four companies, Nutrition Athena, Shakespeare Mill, Farmhouse, and Nutrition Partners, which serve swine producers all across Canada. Swine Veterinary Partners comprises four well-established clinics across Canada, Precision Veterinary Services, Premier SHP, Demeter Ontario, and Demeter Quebec. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show Canada a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the Canadian and global swine industry. Working with nature and not against it, Piglets Fed AX3 see significant and improved feed efficiency. Producers know the reality of needing to reduce antibiotic and zinc use. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible novel protein that promotes improved in barn performance, piglet health, and minimizes the need for zinc in the diet. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. That's www.protecta.com. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of the Swine in Canada podcast. I'm Dan Columbus, and I will be your host for today's episode. And with me today, I have Dr. Fabian Chamba, who is currently operating a, a pig facility. Uh, but has done some work in the past with uh, epidemiology and swine diseases, which we'll get into. Uh, so welcome, uh, Fabian, and, and thank you for joining us today. Hi, Daniel. Um, thank you for inviting me to be part of the podcast. It's really uh, an honor to be here. And as you said before, these days I have the opportunity to be a producer, which is, for me is uh, you know, been a great experience to, to breathe. To live every day, but they live every day. So we, you know, in the sign industry, all the professionals, we have a common goal, which is to help producers do better, right? But when you are in their shoes, it's, it's a completely different perspective. So I, I love it. And um, yeah, uh, a little bit of my background, if you allow me, um, I'm from Ecuador. I got my veterinary degree from Ecuador. Currently, I'm validating my license here in Canada. And I uh, did my PhD in the University of Minnesota, worked uh, for pharma companies pretty much my whole career. I have worked for pharma companies in, in Ecuador, 
I, I work in the U.S. and also in Canada. In fact, I just uh, accepted a position with uh, Ipra, a vaccine company, which is a multinational company. It's a big company in Canada. They have a huge presence. And then they are introducing actually a new and innovative product for PCV2, which is, uh, is one of the topics that we'll be covering today. No, it's interesting background and experience that you have. And, and I, you did mention it, right? It's nice to be out there and, and living what we what a lot of us talk about, because I think, especially in academia, we get stuck in the, in the ivory tower, right? And we don't get always have that opportunity to go out there and see what it's actually like and, and what impact things are having. So um Good experience for you, but I think we'll be glad to have you back on the <laughs> in in the vaccine and the research side of it and everything. So, um, but yeah, so thank you again uh, for joining us. And you, you kind of mentioned it uh, briefly, but today's topic I think will largely uh, be around uh, diseases, and you've mentioned specifically, you know, the epidemiology and surveillance of of some diseases. So, uh, I guess I'll just let you, you know, start. With, with that topic and maybe discuss, you know, some of the stuff that you've done and, and some of the things that are coming up in that. Yeah, sure. I, I try to be, you know, short and sweet and I try to cover topics that I think are relevant of what we do every day. In, in any of the areas that we cover as big production, right, really, these, these concepts of how we can improve the overall science and research and how we use research to help producers, I think is a whole thing. And, you can call it, this is something that is, is a passion for me. So it started when I was in Ecuador and you know, I, did, I did some research in there. And, uh, and then in, in Minnesota, it was really uh, learned those tools as an epidemiologist. In fact, I remember <laughs> it was funny because I, my classes of epi and biostatistics were in the School of Public Health. And there, you know, it's full human things. But for me, it was more like, okay, I... I need to learn all of these things, and I, when I when I need it as a tool, it's not a problem because it can be applied to anything. I mean, pigs, poultry, cattle, cars, whatever. So for me, it was you know great to to have the opportunity to take all of these advanced tools as an epidemiologist because it was really advanced. I mean, I I covered so many grades and classes like doing like probably a, a PhD in epidemiology more than a, my own PhD. But it's great because now when you talk about things like if I want to test a, a product in a farm, let's say an X vaccine, for example, how can I use the proper methods to make at the same time to be cheap and also to at the same time to use that money because those those exercises are expensive. So to use well the money so I have the answers that I need to make a decision to be to do better for a producer or to or to lower my cost or, or improve my profit in a, a, at a farm level, right? It can be a farm or it can be just at a system level. So for me, you know, getting this passion on how we can design these things better and how we can use the information that is available right now to do better, that's what I've been doing the last few years in Minnesota. I did a lot of uh, influenza stuff and all of, all of my studies were on real farms. And a lot of the problems and the questions were, Okay, man, how we do this in a real farm? You have 15, 20 people working in a 2,000, 3,000 head sow barn. How you make sure that the things that you do for the, re the research project that you're conducting are actually 
closer to reality more than the you know the research conditions that we have in a, in a university and um you know we tend to think like we so a lot of those things we have to do with it in a control base but when we when we think about control control is more like you have control over the things that you measure versus the things that you actually have in, in the in the actual facility right so we think about control is a clean very nice facility where you have 10 pigs 15 20 pigs which is is not really similar right to the there is a lot of good things under control studies that we need to do, like transmission studies and challenge studies, especially with pathogens that we don't want to mess up in, in the field. But on the other side, there are other types of studies that I think we can accommodate them in real farms. And I think the big companies in the U.S., for example, they, they already devoted a lot of resources and people to form teams and have uh, farms dedicated to research and understand this type of thing, right? So they know how to do let's call it field research and answer this question better. So design, design is one of the things, right? So when you say control, it's your understanding of which variables are important that can influence your outcome. And then you're good to go. You can do it in any farm, really. So you don't have, you don't need an experimental farm to do these studies, right? And there's more on the understanding of the design. And then from the design to the next step is, how you make sense of that on how you execute it, right? So for that, that's where you need to decide, for example, if you're doing a, let's say a farrowing rate trial, then you need to kind of split each of the weekly groups and consider who is breathing, you know, the semen, blah, 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 all of those factors that you think that they are important, or you have information that they will impact your outcome. And then the other part is, so part of your design, the execution, it has to be very simple. In the in the barn, it has to be very simple. I I I I've, I have many mistakes in which I, I make things too complicated. They don't understand me, and then I fail because it, you know it has to be plain and simple. There is no other way that I can happen. Um, and and yeah, so that one thing. So simplicity, pragmatism. So few variables that are important. Don't 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 get crazy, right? And then make sure that you have a control always, right? Um, Sometimes you, your controls can be downsized in, in the sample size. That's an advantage, right? Because maybe you, you want to compare vaccine A versus B, but you want to make sure there is a challenge in the flow too at the same time. So then maybe instead of having 100 pigs in each of the group, maybe you can have 50 in the control and 100 and 100 in, other, in the other groups, and then you're good to go with that. So things like that are really you know, practical and allows you to make it simpler and, and applied and cheaper too. And then the other the other factor to consider, and I, I work a lot on this one, is to make things simpler and cheaper and focus on what's important, right? And my question is about vaccine efficacy, for example, a PCV2 vaccine. Then for me, it's really simple and easy to say mortality is my goal, right? If I focus just on that one thing, and that's it. Don't worry about waiting pigs and if mortality is, is where the money is, right? Really. Then you don't need to spend more time in, in other things. So it's way it's way simpler than you think. So after you, you pass that phase when you, you make sure that you review information, your design is simple, your implementation is going to be simple, and it's also the cost is, is in consideration. Then the statistical analysis is also part of that, right? So there is no way that you can 
your to your design without thinking how you're going to analyze the data and how you're going to use it to make a decision or to solve a problem in the final. So for me, like when I'm thinking on designing and studying, like think about the final goal, which is how I'm going to implement this to make money in the bank. If the vaccine, for a first vaccine, for example, if mortality is the goal, right? So think how you're going to apply it at the end in the real life so you can actually make it work. And then you design your study based on that. So I think, uh, and, and, thing, and, and another, another first one mentioning those things, I think um, other people in the US related with field research, they are talking about the same, which for me, you know, is it, nice because I think the academia and, and the industry has that opportunity because both sides can bring that, you know, strengths and, and, and making it happen. So it's just like in my real life, I have to be, you know, wiggling around between academia and industry. <laughs> and now as a producer to them, you, you, you got, I, I got a chance to see all the sides. So for me, it's like, okay, the end, the end goal in mind, I think is where, where you need to start. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting that you 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 know you're you're living this all the time and and trying to to figure out how to do and work with industry and work on those farms and stuff like that. I think it's interesting. You know, it's one thing to say make it simple and focus on certain things, but what's simple in an academic's head might not be simple to you know <laughs> the producers and the workers that are doing it. And you mentioned that you had made some mistakes in the past. I'm just wondering, like, what are some of the lessons? that you learned or things that, you know, you thought would have worked. Um, but when it went out there, they're like, okay, this isn't working or, or, you know, we can't do that or something like that. Yeah. Well, we have, um, without a commercial name, but we have one trial, a reproductive one. So I think the South farm was, this, this was last year. The South farm was in, in somewhere in Canada. And, uh, <laughs> and the goal was to, to try this, Horm, uh, hormone or, or um, uh, it's a hormone to synchronize ovulation. So, and, and I, so the idea with that, in, at least in my mind, when, when I was working with my team in Southwest Vets, and at the time that I was there, I was working in research. So the question was from, from the, the owner of the product was, if this product is going to improve fertility or conception rate? So in our mind, we're like, okay, I, I think we, we reviewing your information and and seeing what you have so far. So I think we think like there might be an opportunity here. So we might be able to improve two or three percent infertility. So we design a protocol. And and bear in mind, when you work with these things with around insemination, it it, it is complicated because it's there is always a lot of things going on in the savanna, and then you have to to make sure that this thing is going is going to be implemented, which is an, an additional thing. So the way that we decided in the paper, this product has to be applied, if I remember right, um, before uh, on day four. So on day four, and then you synchronize those those hours to be inseminated just once, fixed time insemination on day five. So 20, 20, 24 hours before you need to apply the hormone to synchronize the ovulation, and then you inseminate a fixed time the next day. So it has to be applied that way. The problem with that is if you don't explain them well what to do with the one or two versus two doses of insemination, then you 
they will screw, screw up initially. So what we did is just tell them what to do, but already this design was already complicated because the weekly group that you win, I don't know, let's say a hundred stars, you have to split them by parity. So then my, my P1 has to be half and a half for each of the group. Control is my normal, regular heat check and two doses of insemination after that. And in the other group was, you just need on day four, you need to apply the product, not inseminate. And then on day five, inseminate all of them. So you apply the product to all of the cells, regardless of heat. If they show signs of heat, doesn't matter. You need to apply the product and inseminate just one time the next day. That, that's how we explain it. So we thought they, they got it. But man, when we review the data, so they didn't, they, <laughs> they put the product, they inseminate at that day, and they inseminate again the next day. So it was, then I realized that this is so confusing for them. And then we added another piece of confusion because they, the sounds that come into heat on day six, they need to be bred as regular sounds. So don't use the product on day five and and inseminate it just once on day on day six. It's like it was like it was all over the place. So they were just, you know, they didn't know what to do, so they, what they did is okay. So we are confused. So we we're going to use the product on day four as you as you told us, but we're going to keep inseminating it two dozen, just in case. Just in case. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't blame them. I mean I as being part of the team that I designed that, and after we realized this is so confusing for them. This is what we're screwing up. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, we even see that, you know, in, in a research facility where something you think is obvious in the protocol or is common sense or whatever, and then it gets out there and no, it's, it, they're not getting it. But I think it's funny, you know, that you say, well, we're going to do it just in case. It's like, but that's not the point of the research. <laughs> the research is to test whether this works, right? Not the just in case. <laughs> so all, ki all kinds of challenges, but, you know, that's that's not just applied research, I'd say. That's that's everything. Maybe more so in the applied because you're, you're dealing with people that are, you know, they have a set thing that they do every day and this is the procedure that they use and they're so used to that, but... And, and trying to get them to change is a, they're a little hesitant, I think. <laughs> yeah, and the other part was like, I don't want to get blamed because you know fertility rate, uh, consensual rate is going to be lower because yeah. of that. Because you are telling me to inseminate cells that are not in heat. How can I trust it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> is there a strategy to to deal with that? I mean, you're you're working with a facility that you know, has obviously agreed to to participate in, in research and stuff like that. But is there um, is there a strategy to get them to understand that, you know, what you're doing might not work or might re result in reduced performance, you know, or something like that? And, and like to get them to understand that and accept that? Or is that just, you, you, you know, they're, the, they're not willing to, to accept that it might not work? Yeah, I think it will depend on the producer, right? Some some people have that um, a different mindset, so they will be okay with uh, any outcome that is not expected. But with with other producers, um, yeah, it, it it will be different, right? So then we, we at the time that I was working with with the with Southwest in the clinic, um, we need to take a, a different strategies on 
uh, insurance uh, contracts or policies. So if something goes wrong, then the cost of the producer is covered or the losses. And uh, so we don't, we, we're not used to do that um, with every single trial, but we, depending on the producer, I think um, that, that that is covered. And, and there is always a, an estimate also for the producer for, you know, the time of the people spend or the producer, the, the producer, you know, energy and, and time and resources. And all. Yeah. Something that I learned also from those, you know, being on there is like, you need to be there the first three, four times that is going to be done. Because <laughs> if you think like you train them and then they will do it at the first time and it's not going to happen. So something that I learned like, yeah, you need to be there, work with them. So they will see it, they will, you know, feel it and experience it. And and the second time you will do it, so questions will matter arise. And then, you know, you build that, also that connection and that confidence with the people too. You know, all all kinds of challenges, but it's nice to see that you're you're working through them and making it work. <laughs> Hopefully, the the rest of us will have to go to you for for assistance if we're if we're going to go out and do more of, the, of this work and and make sure that it actually happens and and happens well. Um, I guess switching gears a little bit, you you mentioned it previously with the the PCV and some of the research that you've been doing, and I know this is. A topic you wanted to talk about specifically with um, PCV2 surveillance and and monitoring and stuff like that. So I guess what what's been going on there? What are the trends and and you know what what do you see happening? Yeah, so PCV2 is a really interesting uh, pathogen, as you know. You know, I, when when PCV2 hit North America and Europe, and I was just starting vet school, so I had no idea what's going on with PCV2. But after you learn from the people that is, you know, before you and the, all of the experiences that they face with that virus without a vaccine, I mean, it's just devastating. The vaccines, it, it is probably the only vaccine that has been the most, most successful vaccine so far for a pathogenic pigs. It is unbelievable efficacious. And that's, you know, that, and you can see it after they introduce the vaccine, you see the drop in mortality and losses, it was incredible. However, when you look at, at the reports from veterinarians in North America, especially, in the last few years, it seems like uh, they are seeing more clinical cases. Although it's not like, you know, not those cases that they used to see 20 years ago or, or a little less than that. It's more like a little more subtle cases, right? Or, or when, when the the cases are presented with other patterns like curves, you see like it, it tends to be worse. So they reported that something is either the virus has changed and the vaccine efficacy has changed. We don't know really with, with certainty, but it's really clear you start uh, thinking about how you can do a surveillance or a, a monitoring program that allows you to understand a little bit how the pathogen flows at least in, from the sow barn through the finishers. I think we we we, we had some insights when, when I was in, in Southwest, we started that project actually. And I am proud of that project because it was a way to join efforts from all the pharma companies that that sells a PCV2 vaccine, which are four or five, you know the names. So we, you know, we rally them and tell them, you know what, I think we, are, we we have a, a proposal that can allow us to understand better this pathogen and I start seeing 
vaccinating sows maybe is you know is going to help to reduce the circulation of this pathogen. So that's what how we started. So for for starting with this idea, we have to also think about how we make this simple. Because we cannot say we're going to choose an X number of flows and then every month you need to send me 30 serum samples. That will be crazy. They will do it probably once, maybe twice, and the third time you'll say, okay, yeah, yeah, that's probably too much. It's not fair, it's an easy to do. If we just, you just vaccinate and you're okay. So we review the, the literature, everything that has been published so far. We did some internal testing in the clinic to understand a little bit more how we can use oral fluids in a little more efficacious way. And we came up with the, all of this information resulted in uh, this idea of we can actually collect from the nurseries and the finishers, we can actually collect three, three rocks, three oral fluids, pull them by three. So the three, you, you take one ML, one ML, one ML, and put it in a tube, mix it, and then send it for a PCR and make it way cheaper. So, you know, three rocks, one, one PCR per month is, is way cheaper than, than 30 zero samples tested individually. So that's one thing. The other, uh, the other thing that the experts were telling us at that time when we were proposing this is like you are testing what, what is in the environment, right? In other fluids, pretty much, not what is in the serum or the pig. Without, you know, the pushback. And, 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 and it makes sense. So when, when we review the information, we realized that some people had this question of how viremia or the percentage of viremic pigs can correlate with the amount or the CT value that you can detect in your PCRs in feces or in other fluids. And for my surprise, the correlation was, it was moderate, decent. So for me, we're like, bingo, this is the opportunity that we, that we, that, that we needed, right? So now we can use this CT value from that PCR from the other fluids as a proxy of the amount of feeds or the quantity of the virus that is being shared in the environment, because the amount of virus that is being shed in the environment is is that direct correlation on how many pigs are shedding or viremic, right? Because they for PCV2 they tend to share when they are viremic most of the time, right? So then, so that, that was great to see because that was a big push. But they, they were telling us, you know, thinking with a clinical mindset, yes, you need you know you need clinical science, you need your lesions, you need to find the pathogen in the lesions, your immunohistochemistry, and also you need your PCRs or the other, the other data, right? So you need all of those three things to be able to say, yes, PCV2 is the cause of this disease. But we were coming from a population-based perspective in which we're saying, we know that PCV2 is there, but we want to kind of correlate if this level detected as CT values. So yeah, so we were saying, okay, so we are coming from, uh, we understand when you have a clinical case, this is what you need to do, right? But what, what if PCV2 is always there and the saddle effect is more so clinical? Maybe your increased mortality is half percent, maybe, right? And we don't you know, really consider that, but half percent, depending on the size of the group or the flow, that's a lot of money, okay? You know, each pig is worth $300 or something like that. So then, you know, it, it, for me, what the, that was that was an opportunity to understand on a flow level. So that was from the nursery and the finisher. Now, how you connect the dots with the sovereign? 
So in the Savan, again, we have tons of information, a lot of expertise, uh, feedback that we have from them, and a lot of experience already from big systems in the U.S. And uh, although we were not thinking in using other fluids in the South, we were thinking more on the what is the easiest and cheapest in the in the in the brands that are you know surgically castrating pigs or processing fluids. So I mean, like, yeah, that that is the one. So and we review the information, and you can pull hundreds of liters up to three hundred, and then the dilution effect or the sensitivity won't, won't be that bad. Of course, it will depend on, on your actually prevalence, right? For example, if you have just one positive out of 300 liters, of course, your pool is going to be negative, right? So there is there is a, a limitation on, on depending on how many liters would be positive versus how much you can really detect in, in your pool. But it's a way at a population base, again, on the flow level, a cheaper and an effective way to monitor PCV2 over time. And we were proposing to do it just on a monthly basis, not on a weekly basis. And, and I, some bets in the US, they do it weekly. And just, just one PCR is not a case expensive either. So processing fluids in the southern every month. So we try to keep the same cohort or the same group, follow them with other fluids just one or two weeks after winning. Because our, our, our thought process from that was like, we need to give the chance to the maternal immunity wane a little bit, and also to give the chance to you know shed and mix and, uh, and share the pathogens, so then you might be able to detect it. So one or two weeks after winning, and then one week before they are moved to the finishing, that's the, another sampling, and then a third sampling one or two weeks after they are moved into the finishing. That's how we place the samplings, and it turns out to be really, really useful. I we. We obtain every single flow will have a different dynamic. That was really, really interesting to see because we tend to assume like if you don't see clinical signs, then you don't have PCV2. Well, yeah, that can be in some of the flows. <laughs> in some of the flows, you might have yeah, a little higher mortality, and then you see the CT value from those testing and you see like around 20s in the finishing. Or even in some flows, you will see. City values around lower 20s in the nursery. So then you scratch your head and say, well, what else is there or what's going on here? And then in the southern, the same. Sometimes the dynamic is a little different. Sometimes in the southern, you can detect really high quantities of PCB2 in those processing fluids. And then you detect it once at the beginning of the nursery, and then it kind of wanes down. It's like the peak is kind of, uh, Develop the immunity and, and the infection just uh, results over time. Some flows are beautiful. Some flows are like flat out, negative, negative, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40. You don't see it, not in the finishes, not in the sour. Every single flow will have a different dynamic. And I think that's uh, what, what you know we usually forget when we monitor over time. So, so does this change the, the thought about the, the effectiveness of the PCV2 vaccine, or I guess the success, like maybe it wasn't a, as <laughs> a, as successful as we thought. It was just kind of hiding, or or what? If I if I'm understanding right. No, I think it's uh, first of all for veterinarians. I think it's a tool. So now you can actually understand what's going on in there, and then you match that information with your with, with what you see right in the flow, and then your production data. You see how many barbecues do you have. Or, 
what is your mortality? In fact, we collected production information from those loads, from the group that we collected the information, and we ran correlations to make it simpler. Regression to associate those two things, right? And see if that CP value level detected in those groups can be associated with the level of mortality. Just from the preliminary data that we obtained until I was in Southwest, we saw that when they, they have more circulation or lower city values over time in those flows, they tend to have a little higher mortality, maybe a half percent higher mortality than compared to the other ones. So then, so then, you know, that information helps you to kind of start asking the next question about the vaccines and then say, okay, those pigs are vaccinated with one dose, maybe two doses with this A, B, or C vaccine. Is that because the vaccine is not working or what is happening there? And, and that's one of the other questions that we have, right? So we need to understand what to do about this. And uh, exactly what we think is happening in there is the, the South pass the virus to the fetuses. We know that vertical transmission. And then from there, pigs are born either with infected or not infected. And then that's how you, you kind of develop the, the infection over time. If there is a lot of that transmission, then you will have a lot of the PCV2 early on. So if you have those situations, then you, you cannot really blame the vaccine because the pigs are already infected, right? By the time you're vaccinating the pig. So the, we, we need to keep that in mind. So I think it's not a, it's not a tool to compare vaccine efficacy. It's more to understand how the pathogen flows and, and what will be the impact of that circulation in your in your production, in your mortality or in your uh, cold survival piece. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess the, the obvious question is, based on this information, then what would be the next steps? Like, do, or do we have to adjust protocols? Do we have to look at, you know, something else? So I guess what's the, what's the end goal of this? Yep, the end goal is precisely to do this to adjust your, your vaccination protocols. As I told you, it's more to, as a holistic view, to adjust your protocol, not to compare vaccines. So then, uh, in my in my van, actually, I what we did is, and this another producer might be doing the same right now, using this information is, if I see that I have circulation, in, in my case, in my van, I saw in processing fluids, it was kind of a intermittent. I can see the CT value going from 40 to 30 something, 30 something, and then 40, like kind of doing like this. For me, we're like, hmm, this might be a sign of instability. Although the levels weren't that high, but for me, we're like, I need to kind of stabilize this and make sure that I push or I don't have any early infection with PCV2. So we start vaccinating south. I think it was at winning. And then we checked the data a few months later, uh, to my surprise, I didn't, and this is just my, my single flow, and this is not with other, but with other flows, now I remember, mummies, mummies, that is an indicator that we use to see the impact of this change in the protocol of vaccination in the South. And to my surprise, there was a, a, a reduction in, in the percentage of mummies after we start vaccinating South. Yeah, and now, the causes of mummies, you were saying PCB2 is not the only cause of mummies. Yes, you're right. There are other pathogens and even management things that can impact that. But if, if, you know, if you keep doing the same and just change this uh, one thing, for, for us, well, like I, at least half percent of mummies was 
was due to um, a vaccine, PCV2 vaccination in South. So that was one thing. The other thing is like, I, I stopped seeing these kind of changes, but I, that I was seeing like the instability, if you want to call it that way. And now it's flat out, everything is negative 40. And I don't see PCV2. Sometimes I see PCV2 in the finisher, but that's all what I see. Everything is negative after that. It's flat out negative CT values are 40. That, that was one. The other thing that I, I'm, I'm not trying to convince myself with this one because it's a little more difficult to associate mortality with the CT values or the effect of the sow vaccination on those CT values and try to, to say like there is a direct effect on that. However, our nursery mortality is a little lower than before. And, and there is seasonality and, and there are other causes around that, but, I, but I, to me, it feels like they, it helps to kind of, you know, especially those little pigs, they're the ones that I'm going to struggle after winning. I think I will help them a little bit to, to, fight, to fight that infection. But, but that's, uh, that, that's not, um, that's anecdotal. We, we were collecting data and we saw about half percent reduction overall when we include about 15 flows with the nursery data, the mortality data associated with those city values in the other fluids. And we found like about half percent can be associated like lower, the lower the city value, the higher the mortality. That's the association that we saw. But it's the, I think the effect is small. I don't think you can say like, oh, I'm going to lower my mortality for from four to two percent just vaccinating south for PCV two. That's that's not going to happen. Well, I think we definitely look we'll look forward to you know more more information that comes out of your surveillance and and potential adjustments to the to protocols and how to deal with that. I think especially now producers need every all the help they could get right to to get as many pigs out the door and have them to have them be healthy. Definitely, definitely some interesting work. Um, so we're getting close to the end uh, of the time. So I guess I, I'll ask you, if, you know, if you want the, the the listeners to get, you know, one or two take home messages from from today's episode, what would that be? For for producers, I guess to to look for help with veterinarians and researchers and try to integrate. There is, you know, it's always teamwork is it's always a good thing, right? So a lot of experiences from. Uh, other people that can help you. Um, yeah, try to, to go and see other producers and, and visit them and, and open your, your eyes to the things that are happening in other places. You know, that will be for a producer for vets. I guess for vets, uh, I know they are busy. Um, it's really difficult for a vet to, you know, to put hours after night, you know, time that you, you should spend with your family, that you, you, you know, you put it in, reading or understanding something that you're not aware of. Um, but I think for vets is, you know, look for, look for the resources, I guess, would be the, the one. And I maybe challenge the status quo because with PCV2, you know, we, we tend to think uh, in a certain way and we are not really open to thinking in other ways. And I know the, uh, the data might turn out that there is no effect or there is no way to predict the production impact through those city values and other fluids. But at least we know the answer, right? And uh, we failed, and and we know now that we don't, we don't, we don't have to use that, that type of tool. So maybe you know, reach out to resources will be, uh, and leverage the resources will be for, for them and challenge the status quo. As a vet, I think um, 
and a, and a pro, as a producer too, I that's what I, I do every day. I challenge the status quo, especially in nutrition. I I we, we do things that we based on, on on the information that is published. When we do collect all the information and then make sense of it, and we feel like hmm, it's not what you think. Maybe you can you can actually improve your profit or reduce your feed cost doing something that is a, a little simpler and. Uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's ch- challenge that is cool, but but be informed, work with the experts and review the information. I, I I definitely like anybody who says that the best is just to challenge the status quo because I think that's the the only way that we advance and and get better and improve, right? So, I mean, very very good message. It's time for our famous three. So we, we've come to the point of the podcast where we ask the, the guests the same three questions, um, a little bit more, I guess, somewhat unrelated to, to the rest of the topic, but uh, get a little bit more information out of you and maybe some suggestions for reading. Um, so our, our, our first question that we ask is um, your favorite swine or animal or agricultural related resource like that you always go to. It, it's your... It's your uh, the Bible. Your, your your Bible, yes. <laughs> I tell it the Bible because diseases of swine for me has been a resource since since I was uh, practicing in Ecuador as a vet here. I I, I use it all the time, and I and I, you know I joke with my wife because when she comes, she's a vet too, and and when she comes to me with questions about certain pathogen or disease, I call I I tell her, well, look at look in look in the Bible. It should be there. <laughs> So, okay. Um, so our next one, uh, getting a little bit outside again, like I said, of the animal science is what would be your favorite book or, or resource outside of your work or animal science? So, you know, this, this one's wide open. You can, you can say anything. Yeah, no, I, I, well, when I have time to read, I, I read Simon Sinek or Simon Sinek, uh, especially, you know, he's got one, one book that I, I you know stick in my mind, which is why leaders eat last, and I think that that one is a good lesson for us on, on thinking on how to understand people, people in the bands and people everywhere, from where they are coming, right? Especially, um, so to understand that and to understand how leadership really should be is mind blowing for me because of my previous experiences so far, and uh, yeah, that, that that's what. I, <laughs> But I like to read when I have time because I normally don't don't have much time to read. <laughs> none, none of us do, <laughs> but it's always good to to get away from the the actual stuff once in a while. So our our final question is: When you think back to uh, swine professionals or even leader, like general leaders or whatever, you know, what would be a characteristic that you would say uh, sets the successful ones apart from those that are you know maybe a little bit less successful? Yeah, without names. But- what I've seen, especially when I was in the U.S., um, something that see as a trade for them was that they really leverage resources. And, and don't take me wrong, they are they are smart people, hardworking people. You know, they challenge it at the school. They, they, you know, they they have all of those the other traits that normally we consider good for for being successful in an industry but uh, or as a professional but uh, something that i realized that this you know being resourcefulness being you know connected and look for the expertise and, and leverage that i think is a 
a key one for me. I think. Yeah, no, I, I would agree in that. That's a different one. Haven't heard that one yet, but it's definitely an important one, right? Is you use what's around you. I actually, that's what I, my, my kind of teaching philosophy kind of revolves around that too, right? Where it's like, you're not going to be the expert and you need to find out who those people are and, and, and know who to go to and where to go for help. So I think it's definitely, you know, an, an important trait. So, well, I think that brings us to the end. <laughs> uh, I have no more questions for you for, for this one. So uh, I'll thank you again for, for being on and some great information. And I hope you, you enjoyed, you know, enjoyed your time with the podcast and hope to have you on sometime again in the future. Well, thank you, Daniel. It's really an honor. I, I'm sorry. And I, I'm in Ecuador and I, the conditions are not uh, <laughs> the best one. I, I don't think the audience is going to be sorry that you're in Ecuador. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's generally one of those places that I think a lot of people would like to, to at least visit. So, <laughs> but it, it all seems to work out well. Yeah, to be on the beach is kind of the place to go. <laughs> yeah, I, I would never say no to that. So yeah, thanks again and thanks to everyone for, for listening.